just get in place and ready here with all the technology that we have. So my name's Richard Fangrad, or Rich Fangrad, as the folks from uh, Gull Lake have, have given me the name tag, Rich Fangrad, but uh, yeah, Rich works, Richard works, that's fine, uh, whatever you want. I, I've been at Gull Lake here, now this is our fifth time here as a family, actually. We, we typically come, we, we came for Dave Patty, who's going to be here next week, so we're going to be here next week as well as a family. Let me just get, okay, get going here. All right, yeah, and, and um, in all that time, I mean, I've been working for Creation Ministries International, as you, as you heard, and um, kind of just never mentioned anything to Daniel, or to Ambush, sorry, and, uh, and then got, a, got an email uh, uh, many months ago, oh, would you, would you be interested in speaking here? I said, oh, okay, sure. Yeah, love Gull Lake. Isn't it great how different ministries work together? And all kinds of, we just heard from, from Sat7, what a fantastic ministry that is. Here's a, here's a challenge in these countries to get the gospel, to get Christian theology into, in, into, into these, these borders, past these borders that won't allow it, and they found a way to do that. What a fantastic ministry. Um, and, and, and Gull Lake, Gull Lake is a fantastic ministry as well, building into families, building into people, building into the, into the staff that they have here. And, uh, and, and we're a ministry, obviously, as well, Creation Ministries International. And as a ministry, what we do as a ministry is we're an information ministry. We want to get faith-building information out into the church in an area where many Christians struggle in their faith. And that's Genesis 1 to 11. Those, those first 11 chapters of the Bible, a lot of people have questions uh, all kinds of different questions that people have, and one of the things that makes us a little bit different than your average Christian ministry is, as far as we know of all the Christian ministries globally, we employ the most PhD scientists. Makes us a little bit different than your average Christian group. I'm not a scientist, in case you're wondering. My background's electronics. My, my, my education, my professional background's in electronics. Worked in that uh, very happily, actually, for over a decade before joining the ministry. But I work with scientists. And the reason we have the scientists on board is to do the research and do, do the heavy lifting, in a sense, for us, for the church, to answer the kinds of questions that, that often do involve some science that come out of Genesis and, and those first 11 chapters of Genesis and so on. You have creation, the fall into sin, the flood of Noah, the Tower of Babel. Genesis 12, you get to Abraham, and it gets pretty normal after that. But Genesis 1 to 11, and that's, that's where people have questions. Here's a picture of our family. We've got five kids, and this was taken just this, this was a day before Christmas, last Christmas, so doesn't that feel nice? The snow, and it's nice and cool, and oh, that's, that's nice on a, on a warm day here. But, uh, so you'll see these folks running around here this next week. Um, as a ministry, I said again, we're, we're an information ministry. There's offices in seven countries around the world. I'm the CEO of the Canadian office, about five hours east of here. You drive five, a little, little bit north, but mostly east of here. And I've lived in Kitchener, Ontario all my life. Married an American, though. Is, is, that, is that okay? As, my wife's from Portland, Oregon, so other end of the continent. But Again, <laughs> we have more PhD scientists than any ministry. We have an information department. We have an information department. And that information department subscribes to all the scientific journals that are out there. We want to know the latest evidences, that the things that scientists are finding about how God's creation operates so that we can communicate these things to the church. Science supports Scripture. And that's part of what I'll be doing this week. 
And, but, but basically this week, I mean, coming to, coming to Gull Lake, I've been speaking on this now for 24 years, nearly 24 years, speaking over 800 churches during that time, and, and uh, Gull Lake is just a little bit different because the, the staff here is so committed and trained to be committed to, to serve the campers, to serve us. And as, as a speaker coming into that kind of an environment, I kind of want to do the same thing. So I want to leave, uh, in, in these sessions that we're having this, in these mornings, I want you to leave encouraged in your faith this week, knowing that the Bible is true. Maybe some of you need encouragement. Maybe, maybe some of you are struggling with doubts. Can I really trust Scripture? Is it really God's Word? And hopefully, these next few mornings, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll deal with some of those issues. We have speakers that travel all over. Okay, well, these are my Canadian slides. Our U.S. office is out of Atlanta, and there are speakers that travel all over the U.S., and you can uh, call them up and have a speaker come to your church. Uh, in order to get that information out, faith-building information, we have speakers. We do family camps like this and go to churches. We also have a website. Our website looks something like that. There's over 11,000 articles, or nearly 11,000, over 10,000 articles on that website. There's a search window in the upper right-hand corner there. You can type in whatever you want, whatever, you know, how do dinosaurs fit into the Bible? Um, what about radiometric dating? Uh, 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 what about cavemen? What about ape men? Uh, um, how, how come we're seeing light from galaxies that are hundreds of millions of light years away if God didn't create that long ago? Or, or where did Cain find his wife if he wasn't able? Or, uh, or other questions like that. And you might have some questions like that. This is a great place to go to get answers to those kinds of questions. Uh, the website name, simple, easy to remember, creation.com. That is a great tool. Parents, get your kids there. You go there yourself. If your kids are asking you questions, that's a great place to go, a great safe place to go to get answers, biblically supported answers that involve science that answer those questions. Great place to go. And we have an email news as well. In our email news, we try to give you the Christian perspective on the latest scientific discoveries. Uh, for example, a number of years ago, a hadrosaur was discovered, a new type of hadrosaur. Uh, it wasn't the first uh, example that was found. Here's an artist's reconstruction of what that animal looks like. This picture behind it there, that's taken through a microscope. That's some soft and stretchy tissue that they were pulling out of its unfossilized bones. And evolutionists dated that animal to have died 80 million years ago. We thought that was interesting. Maybe you think that's interesting too. How can it be 80 million years old if there's still soft tissue in the bones, right? Hmm. That we try to give you the Christian perspective on some of these discoveries. If you want to sign up for that, there's some sign-up sheets back there at the table. They'll be there all week, and, uh, and you can just sign up, and, and we'll get you on that list. It's a simple, free little thing that you can do for your family to get some faith-building information into your home. So this morning, I've kind of titled it Biblical Creation, Science, and Your Spiritual Growth. And you might think, oh, okay, biblical creation and science, well, we would have expected that. You've got a speaker from Creation Ministries. But spiritual growth? Really? It's kind of like one of these things doesn't belong. So we'll get to biblical creation and science in just a minute. Let's start with spiritual growth, actually. Let's start there. And, and, and that's, as we talk about scientific things these next few days, I want to do that all in the context of growing spiritually. So let's, let's begin with that, with that subject there. What is spiritual growth? Well, very simply, spiritual growth is the process of becoming more like Jesus Christ, right? Very basically. And it's characterized by increasingly living lives that conform to truths in God's word. 
We know more about Scripture. We live our lives closer to that. And greater discernment. We're able to discern, as Spurgeon said, right from almost right. In, in today's world, people can't even get right from wrong. But we want to do better than that. We want to discern right from almost right. And spiritual growth enables you to fine-tune your discernment. And a more solid faith. That's a benefit of spiritual growth. And this is, uh, Peter describes spiritual growth in, in terms of how we're to desire spiritual growth. It's to be a strong desire for spiritual growth. Peter compares it to babies. He says, like newborn babies long for the pure milk of the word so that by it, by the pure milk of the word, you may grow in respect to salvation, spiritual growth. And I just, I just think it's interesting that Peter uses the analogy of a newborn baby. A lot of families here, you know what newborn babies are like. I mean, they don't, they don't, work out, they, they don't wake up in the middle of the night and, 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 and they're hungry and they say, oh, uh, gee, I, I, sh- I should let my poor mother sleep. She needs to get her rest. I, th- that's, that's not what they do, right? It's like, it, it's, it's like I want milk, right? That's how we're to desire to grow closer to our Lord and Savior, it's an intense desire. I just think it's interesting that Peter uses that analogy of a, of a newborn baby. So we're to desire spiritual growth as believers. Here's another verse that we can throw out just, just as we think of what spiritual growth is. Very famous verse. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. We're to think differently as Christians, aren't we? We're to think biblically. That by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. There's discernment in there, right? So don't conform to the world, conform to Christ, conform to truth, and train your mind to be able to discern God's will. So there's a little bit as we, as we kind of kick off our teaching here this week on spiritual growth. Now, how does this subject this week that we're talking about this week, how does that fit into this process of spiritual growth, creation, evolution, and that kind of thing? Well, let's, let's look at just one more verse before we get going. Ephesians 4. And there, uh, uh, Paul writes to the, the church at Ephesus, God gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers, and as, as far as CMI, as far as we're concerned as a minister, or maybe me personally, or what we're doing here this week, probably in that teaching category is where we would fit, where we're, we teach as a ministry in a particular area, Genesis 1 to 11, creation, evolution, that kind of thing. Why? To equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ. That's what we want to do. We want to build up believers in our faith, and that's what we'll do here this week at Gull Lake. Until we all attain the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. Be nice to have more unity, wouldn't it? As, as we grow closer to God and the truths of Scripture, we grow closer to each other. That's what we want to do. That's, it's a benefit of spiritual growth. To mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Now here's, here's an amazing benefit to growing spiritually. So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. That's a great benefit of spiritual growth. We're not, we're not taken captive by these hollow and empty philosophies and every, all these other ideas that we hear on social media and all over the place. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. We're growing closer to Christ. So there's kind of, as we, as we dive into creation evolution this week, that we want to keep coming back to these kinds of thoughts. 
It's about spiritual growth. And I'll say more about this uh, as, as we go on here. So that's, that's kind of spiritual growth. What about biblical creation and science? Let's move into that now. Well, actually, let's go back to Ephesians 4 for just a second. Verse 14 says, So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. You know what? Evolution in millions of years is a massive deceitful scheme. And, and some of you might be thinking, really? Is it? I mean, there, there's, there's many churchgoers don't recognize it as deceitful, and there's some tossing to and fro by the falsehoods surrounding the origins debate. And we can, we can speak to that this week a little bit. And I think this, this devastating scheme, this, this uh, deceitful scheme, is having a devastating effect on churchgoers. And, uh, and it shows up, I think, in surveys that have been done. You might be familiar with some of these surveys. The percentage of, of mostly young people, of, of people leaving the church. Uh, George Barna uh, did a survey a number of years ago, Barna Research Group. 61% he found. And these, these, are, these are kids that have grown up in Christian homes that might have come to Gull Lake and that kind of thing. Christian homes, 61%, when they get to their 20-somethings, he says, they leave the church. Incre- well over half. Incredible, isn't it? Assemblies of God did a survey. 66% is what they found in that denomination. Lifeway Research did a survey and a number of years ago. 70%. They found that a percentage return as well. I mean, that, that, that's good news, right? The largest denomination here in the States is the Southern Baptist Church, Southern Baptist Convention. They did a survey back in 2012, a while ago now. You know what they found? 88%. Unbelievable. Um, I, was, I was speaking at a church out in uh, uh, Prince Edward Island. Does anybody know where that is? It's Anne of Green Gables land. If, there, there you go, okay. Um, and I was speaking at a PAOC church, Pentecostal Assemblies of Canada. That's a fairly large denomination in my country. And after the service, the pastor came up and said, you know, we've, we've recently done a survey in the PAOC, a nationwide survey in Canada. You know what they found? 90%. In that denomination, they're losing nine out of every ten of their kids that grow up through the Sunday school program and so on, gone. They get in their 20s, get out from underneath mom and dad for the first time, kind of go off to college, that kind of thing, and they're gone. What is going on? Well, I'd like, I'd like to suggest, I believe these results reveal a breakdown in the spiritual growth of, of mostly young people. There's adults that leave as well, but mostly young people. Now, I realize that's a big statement to make. Let me, let me back that. Let me show you how I think that, that connection happens. Let's think of, different, let's think of a, a continuum, different stages of spiritual growth. You might, I mean, we're all moving toward Christ. That's what spiritual growth is all about. Well, the opposite end of that might be the God-hater, right? And you run into these people on, on the internet and stuff, and they just, they just, they just hate God. They just, they're just angry, that kind of thing. And then we can, we can think of other stages as we move along. For example, the questioning non-believer. Somebody who's not a believer, but he's saying, huh, I wonder, I wonder, you know, could, could God exist? Maybe the Bible's true, and what, what about this area of Scripture, and what about this, and so on. That, that's a different stage of spiritual growth, right? And we could move on from there. But the thing is, a normal part of spiritual growth is having questions about the accuracy of the Bible. That's normal. Most of you have gone through that or are going through that right now. You grow up in the church, you're going to have questions. Can I trust the Bible? Can I make my parents' faith my own faith? 
It's part of the spiritual growth process. Parents, if you have kids that are asking questions about the Bible, if they have doubts about Scripture, don't be overly alarmed. It's normal. Get them some answers. Help them work through that. It's a normal part of spiritual growth. You don't want to stay there. You want to keep moving, right? You want to get to the point where you know that God's word is true, especially those parts that talk about what God did to save sinners, at least those parts, if not everything else. So another normal part of spiritual growth is getting to the point where you have answers to those faith-hindering questions. That's a normal part of spiritual growth. And then, you, of course, you go on to make Christ Lord of your life and, and you, you grow spiritually and continue moving on toward Christ. The thing is, many people never get there. And I think that's what ends up producing those survey results, those very disappointing survey results. So what's happening? Why don't they get there? It's all kinds of questions come in. Well, the questions like, well, how do dinosaurs fit into the Bible? And, well, science disproves the Bible anyways, doesn't it? And how did Noah fit all those animals on the ark? And, well, the Bible's full of contradictions. And what about carbon dating? And what about these eight men? And uh, where did Cain get his wife? And other questions like that. And that kind of throws up a barrier, a hindrance to further spiritual growth. I think that is what's happening in the lives of many young people and many adults as well that leads to those survey results. They, they, they just end up concluding that, well, there aren't any answers to those questions. Therefore, the Bible must be wrong. So I don't need to listen to you talk to me about Jesus. I think we end up with those. So there are some challenges that we have, sort of and starting on a downer note here this morning, but we, we have the, a, a massive loss of primarily young people. So there's some challenges there. You know that Christians are now the most persecuted group internationally? The last, last couple of years or so, Christians are now the most persecuted group. Not, not very much in Western nations yet. I think that's coming, but... In Western nations, we get things like, uh, there's, there's people who say that if you, teach biblical, if you teach creation, what the Bible says about God creating, if you teach that to your kids, you're, you're abusing your kids. You're, you're deliberately lying to your children. That's child abuse. That's, that's what they're saying about teaching creation. Very interesting. So there's some negatives there. However, it's a great time to be a Christian. <laughs> it's always been a great time to be a Christian. One of the reasons it's a great time to be a Christian today is because there is a massive amount of support for our faith, for what we believe as Christians. I'm going to assume most of us are Christians here this week. Maybe not everybody. That's okay. A Christian's faith is not a blind faith. A Christian's faith is a reasonable faith. It makes sense. It's logical. It's good to be a Christian. And I'll share some of those things, those, that support that we have for what the Bible says. I'll share some of that with you in the sessions that we have going on uh, this, this week here. There are answers to questions that hinder faith. There's a way through these, these very disappointing survey results, I believe. Now, as we get into creation evolution, we need to discuss the nature of the origins debate. And this is such a key issue. People think it's about science. Well, I'm not a scientist, so I can't speak to the creation evolution issue. You might be thinking that. Your kids might be overwhelmed, but I'm not, science, so I'm not a scientist, so what do I know? You know, I, I need to listen to the scientists. On, you know what? It's not about science. <laughs> we, we, we could say there isn't a single scientific observation that any scientist makes that a Bible believer should disagree with. It's not about the science. Science involves making observations. You observe things happening in the living world, in the physical world, physics and geology and paleontology, biology, microbiology, and so on. No one disagrees with the observations. It's, it's the spin that's put on it 
where there's disagreement. For example, the branches of science that relate to origins, to where things came from, in other words, areas that haven't been observed, like the past, you can't observe the past, you can only observe the present, they involve a mixture of science and history. There's no debate about the science, the debate is about the history. It's very similar to forensic science. You familiar with forensic science? I mean, all these TV shows on, on TV nowadays, they all start the same way, right? Da-da-da-da, dead body, right? And then, and then okay. Well, so, it, it's, and so what do you do? You have, you have a mixture of forensic science, mixture of science and history, right? In forensic science, you might dust for fingerprints. You, you collect DNA samples. There's a knife over there with some blood on it, and here's the footsteps over here. And so that's the data collection. That's the science. And then you make up a story that fits the data. That's the history. You make up a history, right? The butler did it. <laughs> no, the maid did it, right? You have these different... And, and, the bottom line is, some histories will fit better than others. And so at the end of the TV show, that's where you have the drama in the courtroom, right? One side interprets the data in a particular way. The other side interprets the data in a different way. That's very similar to what's going on with creation evolution. Paleontology, geology, cosmology, those type of sciences that deal with origins are similar in this way. For example, fossils. When somebody finds a fossil, it doesn't come with a nice little tag on it like this that says, hi, I'm 75 million years old, and my favorite color is blue, and I like to eat spaghetti, and I like long walks on the beach at sunset with my sweetie. None of that information comes with the fossil. We could think of the fossil as the science, as the data that can be investigated in the present. And there's no disagreement. Look, there's a fossil. It's in some rock. Yeah, Nobody disagrees with that. That's the science. We can go and observe and make observations there. Where the disagreement comes in and where, where, the, deba- where the origins debate happens is in the history. When did this animal die? What did it eat when it was alive? How fast did it run? What was its social interaction with those other animals over there? And, and there can be different histories applied to the data. So it's similar to forensic science in that way. So ultimately, the nature of the origins debate is a battle between two different histories. It's not about science. The science does play a role, and we'll get into that as we go on, but it's a battle between two different histories. If we summarize those two histories, let's just do that quickly. Start with the evolutionary history. That starts with the Big Bang, cosmic evolution, about 13.8 billion years ago. You, you've all heard of the Big Bang, right? The Big Bang goes something like this. First there was nothing, and then it exploded. I'm serious. The, the physicists that write papers on the Big Bang nowadays, that's exactly the way they describe it. There was absolutely nothing, and then through some quantum fluctuation, big fancy terms, you have this huge amount of energy, and that energy converts into matter, hydrogen, they say, maybe some helium as well, and then millions of years go by, and, and eventually dust forms, and then you get a spiraling dust cloud that forms our solar system at about 4.6 billion years ago, you get a hot molten Earth. And then it cools down over millions of years. You eventually get water and ponds and rivers and oceans on the earth. And life evolves. The first living cell evolves out of that pool of chemicals. It's chemical evolution or abiogenesis. And that first living cell goes on to develop into all the life we see on the planet today, including you and me. That's biological evolution. That's what most people think of when you say evolution. It's that stage in that history. And the final step in that history, humans from an ape-like ancestor. That's one version of history. Uh, It might seem funny to to some of you, but it's very widely taught, right? It's not just teachers and textbooks. It's in popular entertainment. It's in movies. It's all over the place. It's in kids' programs on TV. 
There's another history. God creates one, two, three, four, five, six. Six days of creation. And at the end of that, now here's a key event in the history of the universe. God describes his initial creation as very good. Initially, the creation was very good. Is the creation very good today? No. <laughs> what happened? This happened. Adam and Eve sinned. And that made Apple computers. Or no, Adam and Eve, well, I'm a PC guy, but Adam and Eve sinned, and that brought death and suffering into the world. Physical death came into the world and spiritual separation from God. Then we move on. There was a global flood. I think that's our subject, subject tomorrow. We'll talk about a global flood in more detail. And then many years later, we get to the, the central events of the whole history of the universe, the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Jesus pays the price of death that was brought in by Adam's sin. He pays that price, and we can be forgiven from our sins. So there's a different history. And if we wanted to put dates on this history now, well, when did this one begin? Not 13.8 not billion years ago, but you know what? Somewhere around 4,000 BC, about 6,000 years ago. And you can look at biblical time from other historical documents. And if this is the first time you've heard something like that, you're likely thinking, no, it's not. The earth is 6,000 years old? You've got to be kidding. Everybody knows the earth is millions of years old. Because that's what I thought the first time I heard it. I thought, hey, you gotta, that, that doesn't make any sense. And as odd as that might sound, there have been an amazing array of scientists and engineers and historians and researchers who've undertaken to do a study of how old is this earth? How old is creation? Um, here's, here's a three-page list of some of these. You can see the dates they came up with. And, and all kinds of people have come up with dates around 6,000 years ago, about 4,000 B.C. Even Johann Kepler, I think, is up there somewhere, came up with a creation date of 3993 B.C. He's a famous scientist. Famous scientists have supported a recent creation. And so anyway, there, there are those two different histories, just a snapshot of those two different histories. And so the question we want to ask as we consider the creation evolution issue is, which history fits best? It's like the courtroom scene, right? Some histories are going to fit the data better than others. And uh, it, I, I think we should, we should play a little game here. Which history fits best? Let's look at some scientific observations, observations from the scientific world, and see which history best fits with those observations, either biblical history or the evolutionary millions of years history. So let's, it might be a little confusing. Let's, let's, do, let's do an example, and you'll, you'll see where we're going here. Here's a scientific observation. The Earth's magnetic field that runs our compasses and so on is decaying. The strength of the field is decaying. And it's been decaying at about 5% per century. And archaeological measurements from about 1,000 years ago verify that it was about 40% stronger about 1,000 years ago. That's very interesting. That's an interesting observation. So which history fits best? Well, if the Earth is older than about 10,000 years or so, with this decay rate, back about 10,000 years ago, the Earth's magnetic field would have been so strong that it would have started to melt the Earth. Which history fits best? Well, biblical history is the clear winner here, right? God created the Earth recently. If, if You see how that works? Which history fits best? If you believe the Earth is very old, now you've got to come up with some very interesting kind of Band-Aid fix to get that particular scientific observation to fit your history. But it fits with the Bible. Isn't that great? I love being a Christian. Great time to be a Christian, isn't it? 
Let's do another one. Okay, the erosion of the continents. The con rivers are like freight trains, constantly removing sediment from the continents and delivering it to the bottoms of the oceans. 24-7, it's going on all the time, the erosion of the continents. The average height reduction for all the continents, some are more, some are less, about six centimeters per 1,000 years, which equates to about 24 billion tons of sediment a year. So at that rate, all the continents should have been eroded away in only 10 million years. That doesn't fit the evolutionary time scale at all. And, and the fact that the continents are still here means that they're far younger than 10 million years. And maybe there was something in the past that eroded the continents a lot faster than just the rivers today. Something like, hmm, a global flood. Hey, you know what? Which history fits best? Biblical history. It, the evolutionists say the continents are supposed to be two and a half billion years old. In two and a half billion years, at the current rate of erosion, you could have eroded a continent down to sea level that started 150 kilometers tall. I don't know what that is in miles. Sorry, that's metric. It's really, really tall in, 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 in miles. It, it, the history doesn't fit. Which history fits? Biblical history. I love being a Christian. This is fun, isn't it? Let's, let's do some more. Supernova remnants. Every, you know what a supernova is? Su supernova is a star that's exploded. It's gone a supernova, it's a, a star that blew up, right? And what you're left with is the remnant, is the leftover kind of dust and gas, and it's lit up by other galaxies and so on, that kind of thing. And you see some of these on the Hubble Space Telescope site. Beautiful objects in space, actually. And so we can make some predictions. There's different supernova remnant stages. Here you have first stage, second stage, third stage. The third stage are the very oldest, very largest supernova remnants. Now, if just looking at our Milky Way galaxy, our, the galaxy that we're in, if the galaxy is on, if we go with the, the billions of years history, the Big Bang and so on, we should see about 5,000 of those very oldest, very largest supernova remnants. But if the Bible's timescale is anywhere close to being accurate, we really shouldn't see any, or maybe just a few. So now if we turn to the astronomers, okay, what are you seeing in your telescopes? What is the data? Here's the data. The Milky Way is not billions of years old. I love being a Christian. Have I said that already? Maybe I have. It's great. Which history fits best? Biblical history. Again, clear winner is biblical history. Let's do another one. Dinosaurs. It's amazing what, what, what scientists have found in dinosaurs, in dinosaur bones. Over the last 40 years, there, there's now been, or over the last 15 years, there's now been more than 40 instances of soft tissue discovered in dinosaur bones. Soft and stretchy tissue, blood vessels and blood cells. You can see some pictures here on the screen of some of those. These are dinosaur blood cells and dinosaur blood vessels. Still soft and stretchy. Different kinds of dinosaur proteins have been analyzed, including histones, that's a type of protein associated with forming the, the, the double helical structure of DNA. And little bits of dino DNA have been discovered. Not enough to have Jurassic Park all over again, so don't get too excited, but uh, just incredible some of the observations that scientists have made in their dinosaur bones. Which history fits best? Well, now remember, the evolutionary history says dinosaurs all died out about 65 million years ago, right? Obviously, these ones didn't. <laughs> Which history fits best? Biblical history. Man, I love being a Christian. Even dinosaurs. And we're going to talk about dinosaurs. I think that's, when is that? Wednesday, I think. We're going to do a whole session on dinosaurs. Parents want to know because their kids want to know how dinosaurs fit into the Bible. One more. Canyon formation. 
we're, we're often told that canyons, there's very like, famous canyons like the Grand Canyon, for example, take a long time to form, way longer than 6,000 years. Uh, we were at Bryce Canyon as a family just a little while ago. This is Bryce Canyon here and uh, some beautiful canyons there. If we, if we think of canyon formation a little bit, well, canyons typically form by rivers. Here's, this, is, this, is, uh, this is Yellowstone, and that's the Grand Canyon of Yellowstone, is what, this is what the rangers have called this. And obviously, if we think of canyon erosion, larger rivers, like that one there, are going to erode canyons faster, right? If, if, if larger rivers produce more erosion than smaller rivers, like this one here. So the more water you have, the faster canyon erosion you'll get. That's interesting because biblical history includes a time when there was much more water, doesn't it? And again, we'll talk about the flood tomorrow. So could a flood be responsible for carving out those canyons and the rivers are just the leftovers today, still, still kind of doing a little bit of erosion? Hmm, interesting to think about that. Do we have examples of canyons that we know today that were not cut by rivers but were cut by massive flows, something like a global flood? Well, yeah, we do have some examples. Here's one here. This is a little canyon, has a river going down. I don't know if you can see it from the back there. It has a little river going down the middle of the canyon. That canyon didn't take 1,000 years, didn't take 100 years, didn't take one year. It was eroded in a day. 600 feet across, 150 feet deep. It's a pretty big canyon, eroded in a day. So what happened here? This is a picture from the base of Mount St. Helens in southern Washington state. Mount St. Helens is a volcano. What happened was the volcano erupted. There was ice and snow up on top of the mountain. That melted very quickly, and that produced a mud flow that came through this area twice highway speed, carving out that canyon. Or maybe highway speed, depending on how fast you folks drive around here. But I noticed those signs are, are a lot lower than we have in Canada. You have, you have 60 on the highway. That would be crawling in Canada, but... It was eroded in a day, and then the river formed. It's interesting, there, there's a river going down the middle of the canyon, but the river didn't form the canyon. In fact, the river wasn't even there before the canyon was there. The river formed after the... So it's not the river caused the canyon, it's the canyon caused the river. The, the reason there's a river there today is because when it rains, the water collects in the canyon and it forms a stream. But the river had nothing to do with its formation. Very interesting, thinking about canyon formation, and, and scientists, Bible-believing scientists have gone all over the world looking at canyons and, and thinking, you know what, the rivers that are flowing in them today are incapable of creating the canyons that they flow through. Very interesting. I even went whitewater rafting uh, for five days through the Grand Canyon back in the 90s. It was a DVD uh, that I didn't bring with me. Uh, and as a family, we were just at the Grand Canyon a couple weeks ago. There's us, uh, that was, that's about too fun there. But Grand Canyon. Now, let, let's think a little bit more deeply about the rocks there. So the, the, really, the, if you're struggling with the age of the earth, the flood is the key to understanding the age of the earth debate. It really is. Because a flood would have aged the earth, if you know what I mean. didn't actually make it older. It just accelerated those aging processes like erosion and deposition, mountain building, continental drift. It accelerated those things. And I'll say more about that tomorrow morning. But let's think just a little bit more deeply about those rocks there. Those rocks have things in them, don't they? Fossils. And the fossil record, which scientists have, have spent a lot, many years looking at the fossil record, there's all kinds of things in the fossil record that have been discovered. Obviously, it's a record of dead things. It's also a record of pain. There's all kinds of diseases in the fossil record. It's a, it's a record of extinction, uh, thorns, carnivorous activity, and there's dead humans as well in the fossil record. Very interesting. 
So if we, if we now relate this more to biblical history and understanding the Bible, let's, let's throw this question out. Where do the fossils fit in biblical history? Now, the, the fossils, the, the fossil record captured the results of a sin-cursed world, right? You've got diseases in there like cancer and so on. That's not very good. And if we put up, let's put up our, a little snapshot of biblical history here again. So where do the fossils fit in that biblical history? Where do we place them? Well, very simply, the flood produced the fossil record. Easy to understand, fits very well. There's verses in the Bible that we can reference, for example, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. Now that's God talking to Adam and Eve about what's going to happen after the very good world, when the the creation is cursed. And there's fossil thorns and thistles. And the flood is a great mechanism, a worldwide global flood produced a worldwide fossil record, rapidly burying plants and animals, beautifully preserving some of them. It's wonderful. And then we can, we can think a little bit more deeply about that and think about what Jesus did on the cross. Uh, Paul writes in Romans, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, the first Adam, and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. And then Jesus Christ, the perfect, sinless, spotless Lamb of God, pays the price of death on the cross for our sins so that all those who place their faith and trust in him, when we die, we don't need to fear death. We, we sang that song earlier. What was it? I'm I'm no longer a slave to fear. I am a child of God. The reason that we as children of God, for those of us who are, don't need to fear the future is because our sins have been paid for by Christ. that's, that's That's what it's all about. Your sins can be paid for by Christ. Turn to him. But... There's people who say, and many people in the church, that no, 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 that's, this, this all works out very well. But there's people who say, that's not where the fossils go. The fossil record is millions of years old. It goes here. Fossil record laid down over millions of years. Huh. Well, what, what happens then? Well, then you get to around 6,000 years ago, and, and God at that point steps back and says, my completed creation is very good. Uh, no. Uh, could, could cancer, diseases, pain, violent death, that, that scientists see in the fossil record, could, all of, could God call all of that very good? That doesn't make any sense. So somehow you have to get that out of Scripture. That, that, doesn't, that doesn't fit there. And then what about that next one? It was because of Adam's sin that death came into the world. Adam, you're going to die. You're going to go back to dust Physical death is a direct result of sin, and there's massive spiritual implications as well. But if there's been death already for millions of years, then what did Adam's sin do? It, it really didn't bring death into the world at that time, so you somehow have to get rid of that one. As that, that doesn't make sense either. And then what about a global flood? We read about that in Genesis 6 to 9. Well, a global flood, if, 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 if the fossil record was laid down as a result of millions of years of slow deposition, then the flood really didn't do anything. So you have to say that the flood is a little flood, not a global flood, a local flood over in ancient Mesopotamia, that kind of thing. You have to get rid of that. Now, what about that last one? Now, we don't want to put an X over that one. That's the foundation of our faith, right? But way back in history, if death is not the result of sin, if Adam's sin didn't bring death into the world and all these other bad things that we see in the fossil record, if they've already been there, then there's really no connection between sin and death. And we all know that we're, we're told that Jesus died to pay for our sins. 
But if the connection between sin and death never happened because death has been going on for millions of years before there was ever any sin, then there's no connection between the two, then Jesus didn't really die to pay for our sins. So that one's out as well. It's interesting. How we understand the world around us can have a huge impact on the central doctrines of Christianity. By breaking the link between sin and death, the main teaching of Christianity is destroyed. And and it's amazing, even atheists understand that. If you get rid of Genesis, get rid of the events that happened in Genesis and say there was never any real Adam, you know what? They understand you can't have have the gospel. In a debate between an atheist and a Christian, the, the atheist said, now that we know that Adam and Eve never were real people, the central myth of Christianity is destroyed. If there never was an Adam and Eve, there never was an original sin. If there never was an original sin, there's no need of salvation. If there's no need of salvation, there's no need of a savior, and I submit that puts Jesus, historical or otherwise, into the ranks of the unemployed. I think that evolution absolutely, is absolutely the death knell for Christianity. Interesting, isn't it? The atheist understands that if you blend these two ideas together, you actually have the destruction of the gospel. So where do the fossils fit? They fit here. That makes sense. It fits, it fits with science. It fits with theology. If you've got death and bad things after Adam sinned, so the death and bad things come in here, and they're encapsulated in the fossil record. Perfect. It all works. And theology isn't destroyed. Yes, there's a beautiful symmetry there. The first Adam sins and brings death into the world, and the last Adam pays the price of physical death to pay for our sins. It all works out. It's wonderful. When we have a consistent biblical worldview, we have a solid foundation for the gospel. We see evidences from God's world that support his word. It's a great time to be a Christian. We're not tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by these deceitful schemes. It's, it's kind of this situation here, if we go back to this one. There, there are answers to those questions. Those things make sense. If we have a consistent biblical worldview, we can move on. Our spiritual growth can progress. We need to get to the point where we know that God's word is true. There are answers, and some of you might have some some serious questions about whether or not you can trust Scripture. And I hope that this week, if if in these sessions we don't answer those, seek me out. If we're at the beach or or eating over in the dining hall or whatever, ask me questions. We're going to have a question time. Actually, Wednesday evening, we're going to have a question time. That may not be enough, but uh, uh, ask me questions if I'm around. Get answers to questions that are hindering your spiritual growth. It's a great time to be a Christian. You know what? I think most of the church today, the writer of Hebrews describes it this way. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. I think that unfortunately characterizes much of the church and many Christians today. But solid food is for the mature for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. That's what we want to do. By constant practice, by reviewing these things, uh, we, can, we can think about that. And I brought some resources that I'll talk about uh, next time. There's great faith-building resources out there. Biblical creation, science, and your spiritual growth. That's a kickoff to some of the teaching this week. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank you. That, there, that today there are answers for some of these faith-hindering questions that many people have. And I just, I pray for the group here at Gull Lake this week that, uh, that we would leave this week encouraged in our faith, maybe getting answers to some of these faith-hindering questions 
that, uh, that can unfortunately lead people to leave the church. And Lord, we know that that devastates your heart. It devastates ours as well. We want people to grow closer to you as they attend church, as they live in Christian families. We want moms and dads to be able to train up their kids in righteousness. And, uh, and Lord, we thank you for that. And, and I pray that the folks here would make use of some of the resources available and share them with people who don't believe that your word is true. And as a result of that, I pray that many would come to know your son, Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.